continue our worship this evening by reading God's Word together by just spending some time studying the Bible together. So uh, I want us to uh, uh, begin this evening just reading the book of, uh, not the whole book of Philippians. We could have a go, but we won't. We'll read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And I'm reliably informed it's on page 1178 of the Pew Bible that should be in front of you. You've got uh, a Bible that looks like this, hopefully. This isn't the chapels, by the way. This is my own copy. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is God's true, perfect, inerrant world, suitable and applicable for all people everywhere. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in the grace, in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Amen. Let's just bow our heads, shall we, one more time. Lord, we confess uh, we uh, need we need you, Lord. We need the guidance of your Holy Spirit as we think through these things contained in your Word here this evening. We need that wisdom that only you can bring, Lord. Lord, help us to listen. Help us to put aside any of the strains and stresses of the of the day of the week. Help us to uh, just listen. Help us to listen with open minds, discerning minds, with open hearts, Lord, to hear what you have to say and to apply it, Father, to our daily lives uh, for your glory and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
I was watching a bit of telly the other night, and uh, I was watching this program on Channel 4. I caught, the, I caught the sort of last ten minutes of it, and uh, it was something to do with Darwin. I don't know what the title was. Something to do with Charles Darwin and the origin of the species. Anybody catch that? Anybody know what I'm talking about? A few hands. And um, it was narrated by a guy, Richard Dawkins. That's right, isn't it? That's his name. Because Dawkins and Hawkins and Squawkins, I get them all mixed up. And uh, Richard, Richard Dawkins, this sort of self-styled devil's chaplain, according to his website. And uh, a sort of atheistic Darwinian populist. And it fascinated me, just the back end of it. I usually don't watch this stuff because it just winds me up and I just want to rag the TV through the window in love. And um, I was fascinated, and I was fascinated, and I'll tell you why. Because um, the bit I watched anyway, this guy, he's on the screen, and the sort of camera pans up to him. It's all soft focus, a nice bit of background music, and, uh, and then he's, he's reading out of Darwin's Origin of the Species, you know, just reading a few verses here, and a, and a few verses there, and appealing into the camera, you know, for the nation to understand, we don't need religion anymore. We don't need religion to make sense of our world. And I sat there thinking, man, this is, this is a hugely late, it's almost evangelistic, well, it is evangelistic, complete evangelistic technique, complete blatant all-out attack on people of faith by a guy who describes Christianity as a virus that needs to be eradicated. And I thought, Supposed to be, and he's supposed to be one of the, the, the country's most intelligent men. Well, I must be close behind if he's, if he's that clever. <laughs> and I'm going to think of it, this is just polemics. There's, there's nothing here. There's nothing. This is just an all-out, full-frontal attack on everything we believe. And the gospel is under attack, isn't it, today? The church is under attack today from these forces, secular forces, uh, atheistic forces. Jesus is under attack. The uniqueness of Jesus is under attack. But it's nothing new, is it? It's always been under attack. Jesus has always been under attack. People have always opposed the message. We've been going through the book of Acts as well in our Sunday morning services. And there's always been opposition to the church and the message. And the opposition is always the same from the Jewish Sanhedrin right through to internal division. Stop preaching the name of Jesus. People don't want to hear it. They want to drown us out. And men, women and children have historically lived and died proclaiming this gospel to the bitter end in the face of massive onslaught, haven't they? We've all read the books, we've all got the collections and how times have changed for us. I was sitting there uh, thinking, how times have changed for us in the Western world. These days, you know, persecution is not so much getting thrown in prison and having your fingernails cut off. But we live in this environment of fear. Intellectual fear, I feel, sometimes, which is unnecessary. It's a fear built as well on what other people think about us. And think about what we have got to say. We've got this fear of upsetting uh, uh, someone. A fear of being politically incorrect. A fear of losing our jobs. 
a fear of, any, of almost everything. Of standing up and saying, no, I believe this to be true. We're crippled. We've got a, a Christianity that's atrophied. We live in a world that says it's okay to have a faith as long as you keep it private. Keep your voice down, son. It's alright to have a faith, but don't actually believe in anything too strongly because that just won't do, will it? Believe what you like, but don't force it onto anybody else. That's the modern mantra, isn't it? Isn't it? And it's robbed us, and it's robbing us of our confidence in the gospel. If you want to ask me what the first, uh, 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 most serious problem with Nidri Community Church when I came, people had lost confidence in the gospel. It's robbing us of all that vitality, all that joy that we ought to have in Jesus. Whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, whatever onslaught we face, from whichever opposition it happens to be. And many people have bought into that, haven't they? They've bought into the unbiblical ideal that work is for the week. They won't say it out loud. But work is for the week. God's for the weekend. So you've got this side, you've got this, these forces on one side. Then you've got what I call the, the, the God channel effect. A bunch of nut jobs. There's a lot of them, quite frankly, ought to be shot bunch of lying, thieving con men and women. If they're to believe, all Christians ought to be happy, healthy and wealthy. God doesn't want us to live a life of suffering or sacrifice. He doesn't want us to, to live with need in our life. He wants us to be comfortable, doesn't he? Particularly in the realm of money. Blessing has now got to do with finances more than anything else in certain circumstances, in certain circles. We shouldn't have to struggle or suffer. And so you've got these forces, and there's many others, battling against the gospel. And the result, pastorally, has been nothing short of devastating. Firstly, our faith has been pushed to the sidelines of our lives. That means many people, and I find this unbelievable, that many people never talk about their faith and the Lord Jesus in their daily working lives. I find it incredible. And here we've got guys going on mission. I'm trying to teach my people. We're all missionaries today. Every one of us, wherever we are. I cannot evangelise your workmates. Only you can. I can't be salt and light where you are. Only you can. The world is changing, isn't it? But secondly, the message has been watered down in many places. That hard-hitting, all-out suffering in the face of all opposition gospel has been replaced by a very nice, comfortable religion. Thank you very much. Oh yeah, we love Jesus. We'll knock out a few decent songs and that. A few riffs on the guitar and we all feel good and go home. But calm down, mate. Don't get too excited. And it's left us 
with a generation of believers who want all the blessings, but they don't want to count the cost. Chocolate Christians, I call them, they melt at the first sign of trouble. A, gener- a generation who thinks that God would never want them to make a hard decision in their lives. God wants us to be happy, doesn't he? God wants us to express ourselves. The idea that God would call us to a life of self-sacrifice is abhorrent to many Christians today. Surely God would not want us to sacrifice our jobs, would he? Surely he wouldn't want us to sacrifice our careers, our salaries, our lifestyle, or even our life for Jesus. What we'll do is we'll pray for those poor old people out on the other side of the world who are doing that. Lord bless them. And, th- and, and, and thirdly, we've got this, this lopsided view of Christianity means that more than ever before, Christian pastors are counselling depressed and downhearted Christians who feel that the gospel they were sold doesn't live up to these false expectations. Peter's agreeing with me, aren't you? The joy of simply being saved has gone out of us. That simple peace within us that knows that we belong to Jesus. Whatever idiots say on Channel 4. We belong to Jesus. How that with chips, mate? That simple peace has been eroded and is being eroded from the life of so many people. And the letter we have open before us this evening, Philippians, was written to a group of believers who faced huge pressures likewise particularly from uh, the Roman Empire and the Jewish forces, to water down the gospel to the point where it was okay to live a good life, but not a sold-out one. So Paul writes to them. He writes to them to warn them the danger of being sucked into an easy, toothless Christianity that loved Jesus, but didn't really surrender all to him. And this is one of Paul's four prison epistles. At the end of the book of Acts, we find Paul imprisoned in the city of Rome for two years. And during that imprisonment in Rome, Paul wrote four letters. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon. And when Paul wrote these letters, his life was at stake. He was awaiting the verdict of the Roman emperor, Nero, as to whether he would be set free or executed. Whether he would live or whether he would die. And at the time of writing, he still didn't know which way it was going to go for him. So he's under a little bit of pressure. A little bit of stress, wouldn't you say? And as it turns out, he was set free. And he continued his missionary efforts um, for a few more years. But then a few years after his release, Nero began this terrible persecution against the church. And a few years after that, Paul was again arrested and this time he was executed as a martyr for the faith. You know, often in the week, people send me text messages or emails. Sometimes even ring. Sometimes. And uh, because they need to talk to me about something. 
Some people are upset. Some people are depressed. Some people are nutters. Some are struggling. Some just want a bit of company and a chat. The point is this. It's, it's very easy for me to tell by the tone of a text or an email or a letter. They do exist. Uh, the mental state of a person. And whether or not the matter is urgent. And whether or not, you know, what order of priority I need to put them in to deal with it. And uh, the same can be said here of Paul. As we read his letter to the Philippians, in it we see exactly what was going on in this guy's heart. Exactly what's going on in his mind as he was waiting for his sentence to be passed in his prison cell. We might expect him to be worried, anxious, even a little preoccupied. But no, what we find is a guy full of joy. In fact, he mentions the word joy 16 times in four chapters of this letter. He's a happy guy. He had this deep, abiding joy in his life. And he writes to tell this little church why he could remain so joyful even in these darkest of circumstances. Joy is a great three, uh, theme of Philippians. Who doesn't want joy and happiness in their life? Put your hand up if you don't want to be joyful and happy in your life. Not many people don't want it. We all do. We all want to be contented and fulfilled. We live in a society that tells us that buying stuff will bring us joy, won't it? A new dress will make you happy. If you're a girl, obviously. <laughs> a new car will make you happy. A shopping trip will make you happy. The best phone, that will make you happy. A larger house will make you happy. New friends will make you happy. A holiday in the sun will make you happy. Religion will make you happy. I mean, we're in trouble, aren't we, when Paris Hilton's knocking out books about spirituality. Give me a break. And many churches are selling this consumer Christianity where God is this giant cosmic counsellor who just wants to give you a big fat hug and your life will be all right. God will get you what you need and give you what you want. Some churches are promising total victory over all of our problems. Addictions, depression, sin, poverty, sickness. Walking into any Christian bookshop, it's full of stuff like this today. Do my napper in. Yet Paul is clear that his joy is firmly placed elsewhere. His joy, he said, tells us, his joy, his happiness comes from the following. Firstly, he says, his joy comes, if you look at the verses 3 to 6, comes because of their fellowship in the gospel. Paul uses the word partnership in the NIV version, but the exact translation is fellowship. His joy comes from their fellowship in the gospel. What exactly is this fellowship he's talking about? For some it's, you know, tea and cake after the service, joining us for a bit of fellowship. Oh, for some it's when Christians get together to meet up for a formal meeting in the week, you know, prayer fellowship or women's fellowship or Something like that. But fellowship was used in the first century when two people went into business together. Two men start a business together. They sink everything they've got into getting it started. And then they've got to ensure the vision for its growth that these guys are going on along the same lines. Otherwise, it's going to be down the swanee. Without a strong fellowship or partnership, it doesn't work. Likewise, true Christian fellowship is a group of people coming together, sacrificing all 
Listen to that. You sang a song about it tonight. All my earthly ambitions, la, 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 la. Sacrificing all and working together for the good of the gospel. So that is our aim, isn't it? Our true purpose. Our ultimate vision. All true fellowship centres on Jesus Christ. Always. It's more than about tea and biscuits. Paul's joy in them and in their commitment from the moment they were saved until now, he says in verse 5, in getting their hands dirty, in making sure that the good news of Jesus was being advanced. Their consistent and persistent prayer, their gifts, their preaching, meant that Paul was full of joy for them. That's why they had started well, they were moving on together. That's why he says in verse 6, be confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. The day of uh, Christ Jesus. Nothing pleases a pastor more than to see his people grow and new believers come to faith and push on in the gospel. You know, that getting people, you know, that, 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 I want to say this right so I don't get into trouble afterwards by some of the theologians out there. Almost the conversion is the easy bit because it's not my job, it's the Holy Spirit. So he's, you know, he does his bit and then the hard bit is watching, is pushing them on, is moving them forward in Jesus. And nothing pleases the pastor more when he sees that, 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 that first glimpse of light, push on and move on and move forward. That's where, that's where he, he is here, Paul, with these guys. Listen, many people have made professions of faith in the course of my service for God. And probably many, many, many more in Peter's. He's much older than me. And, um, and many of them have fallen away when the time of testing comes. I always work on the parable of the sower. Jesus prepared us for a failure, didn't he? 75% if my maths do me good. Many of them fall away. Many guys have come to faith in Nidre. Some of them are going to fall away. Some of them are beginning to slip away now. The lack of time and effort and, 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 and manpower. Many have been found wanting when push comes to shove because they weren't prepared to commit all to Jesus. Many have persevered. Um, one of our first ever real converts in Brazil now studies at Bible College and is the assistant pastor of the church we planted. And I always get a little buzz off that. It gives me a joy. Do you know what I mean? A joy that will have eternal significance. When I think of Brazil now, it does fill me with a deep sense of joy. That not only is the work continuing, but it's progressing without me as well. Because God is God. And he's doing his business. Warren Wearsby asked an interesting question here for us. Am I the type of Christian that brings my pastor joy whenever he thinks about me? Am I a moaner? Oh no. Quick, I'll behind the book stand. They're coming. Are you? Are we that type of person? It's a big question, isn't it, that one? And there's no such thing uh, either as, as a spurious conversion when God is at work. That only happens when men are at work. We pray at Nidri that God is moving by his spirit and will bring people to repentance by his means, by the gospel, not by evangelistic ploys or, or marketing techniques. You know what encourages me most in Nidri? 
when I hear of a couple who've met up in the week, you know, they've gone out for a, a drink or, a, or something, or they, they've met round each other's house and they've had a barbie. Spontaneous. Just called themselves, gone together. They've ended up reading the Bible together, praying, and coming together. That's fellowship, eh? Spontaneous. You don't plan it in a business meeting. It comes naturally when we love Jesus. That's what Paul is talking about. Look, he says, uh, look at 3 John verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's the pastor's greater joy. That's why Paul says back in verse 7 of Philippians, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. This guy, he loves them. He loves them. We love our people. It's harder to love some more than others, but we love them. Even in jail, even though he was in jail, his joy was great because of their great fellowship. Their partnership. Let's pray for that same fellowship here. Wherever your community happens to be. We need that, don't we? The greatest compliment a church can be paid is, you know what? I felt a sense of community there. That these guys are bothered about each other. That it's not just an intellectual exercise. See how good he is. Mark him out of ten and get downstairs for a quick brew. You know what I mean? True fellowship. That's what people want. That's what people are looking for. Fellowship in Jesus that is apparent by nature is attractive, guys. You don't have to use any technique. People see it in you. We don't have to sell it. It sells itself. And the fellowship of the gospel has got to be nurtured. We have to fight to keep it going. It's the gospel that unites us. That's why we should be constantly talking about it. Are we constantly talking about Jesus? Do we do each other's heads in with Jesus? I'm not saying we shouldn't you know, enjoy each other's company and talk about other stuff. But the saddest thing for me, and do you know what? I hear more and more Christians say this today, and, and, and this is really sad, is that Christians who've known each other for, for years, 10, 20, 30 years, have never really had an in-depth conversation with their brothers and sisters about their faith, about their life, about the struggles they're facing. Who thinks that's sad? And I think it's awful. I think it's worse than awful. I think it's twisted. I think it's sinful. I think it's depressing. I mean, what else holds a bunch of misfits like us together if it's not the gospel? From all walks of life, eh? Those of us who meet together in whatever capacity in the week, we need to be encouraging each other in the gospel. How are you doing? How are you going? Fine should be banned from your vocabulary. Oh, I'm all right, brother, stroke sister. We must put the gospel back into the centre of our lives. The gospel back into the centre of our fellowship. Understand what I'm saying? When we meet together, not not the churchy bit on a Sunday, when we come together, we're talking about Jesus. If you left a conversation with someone and and, and you know where they're at and you prayed for them and you've strengthened them and they you in your walk, because that'll pay dividends. That's attractive. That stands up in the face of any idiot on Channel 4, does it not? And it will encourage you, 
It will encourage this church. It will encourage the leadership. Jesus lived a life in complete opposition to the comfortable Christianity being sold to us today. He was poor. He was homeless. He was abandoned by his mates. He was abandoned by his family. He was hung on a cross to die a cruel, agonizing death after he was beaten, whipped and mocked. And most of his followers after him. So who do we think we are? Who do we think we are that we can escape this? Who are we to think that God owes us a good and comfortable life? Who are we to think that we will give to God whatever we have left after our working week and leisure time has been sorted out? Who do we think we are? Who are we to give sweat, blood and tears in pursuit of our own naked ambition and next to nothing for the cause of the gospel and the fellowship of Christ? All this self-help, all this pursuit of happiness has left us with huge mental health issues, drug, alcohol addiction, chronic depression. And we're sitting in each other's company and we're not talking about Jesus. What are we doing? We're doing our own selves in. We're doing the enemy's work for him. Well, I'm sure we'll gladly sit and talk about premillennial eschatology, you know. But we're talking about the real stuff, the heart stuff. I've got a surprise for some of you if you're into the God channel. Hold on to your hats. We're not all going to be rich. We're not all going to uh, have children. We're not all going to live in a big house. We're not all going to be world famous. We're not all going to be free from illness. We're not all going to be free from suffering. Fact. can peddle what they like. Those are the facts. Are they not our experience? So where do we find fulfilment and joy? It has to be in Christ and in the fellowship that we find in each other. It has to be there. Listen, secondly and quickly, because I'm, I'm running out of time, I'm going to get into trouble again. His joy is in their spiritual growth. Look at verse 9. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. I don't want to really overemphasize this. But it's interesting to me, the wording there. Not to love each other, not even God, but to love knowledge and depth of insight. That's interesting, isn't it? He wants them to love the knowledge of God more and more in their lives. You've got to be careful in intellectual circles. I mean, you know, the chapel has got a great history of guys who are great preachers and do fantastic expository ministry. So, my apologies. And um, knowledge, though, should always lead to an increase in love, not pride. Shouldn't it? That's what he's saying. Reading theological books and having a vast encyclopedic knowledge about the first century usage of toilet rolls is useless to you. He's saying. If love for God is not the end result. There's a lot of intellectual snobbery and elitism in Christian circles today. But the love of knowledge leads to growth and holiness. That's what he's talking about in 10 and 11, isn't he? Why love knowledge? That you may be able to discern what? What is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. We can't increase in knowledge but not in obedience. We can't increase in love and not in holiness. That's his bottom line. They're all intertwined. The love of knowledge is different 
than the love of the knowledge of God. It's a danger to look out for. But by the same token, Christians should not be all fluffy, doe-eyed, intellectual morons, should they? We need guys to take on Dawkins. We need guys to be standing up. Where are our guys standing up and giving it some welly? Where are they? You know, these guys had a debate yesterday. But where are they? Few and far between. We need a radical reformation. Don't we? Not just in this country, in Europe. A proper one. A a return to muscular Christianity. We've got the good stuff. These boys are robbing it. And we're sitting blithely by while they do it. Listen, finally, his joy is in the advancement of this gospel. Verses 12 to 18. He's still preaching, despite his predicament. And that has led to an advancement of the gospel in verse 12, didn't he? Look, I want you to know, brothers, what's happened to me, I'm in prison, has really served to advance the gospel. Why? Because as a result, the whole God knows why I'm here and who Jesus is. So he's encouraging others to do likewise. Use whatever situation you find yourself in to advance the gospel of Jesus. Well, what is this gospel? Simply this, God has provided us with a rescuer to save us from our sins. A sinless man to die for sinners. A just man to die for the unjust. A righteous man to die for the unrighteous. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, to reconcile us to God. To restore a broken relationship, a broken friendship. Without the gospel, we're completely lost and doomed Forever. That cannot be overstated. Some people say to me, well, I don't feel lost. So what? Remember when I first went to Brazil and uh, I flew out with... I mean, Kezia was about something. 15 months old. Lydia was about six months old or something. Ah, that doesn't make sense, does it? But anyway, they were babies. (laughs) They were babies and, you know, they puked a lot. And um, we got there. Well, she must have been older than that because she could walk. Anyway, and uh, we, we got into this big, massive um, place you go where planes land. What's it called? An airport. I'd be good against this Dawkins guy. And um, we got in there, and it's all, it's just like bizarre. I mean, funnily enough, it was all in Portuguese. Can you believe that? And um, it was just, everybody was... Blah, 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 blah. And we were just completely lost. We'd just done an 11-hour trek with two girls, and I was covered in vomit from head to toe, a bit of turbulence. And uh, not mine. And... Um, <laughs> We got there, and we sat down, we got some food, we sat down, and all of a sudden I suddenly realised, where, where is Kezia? You know when your heart just stops, and this place is it's enormous, and I'm just freaked out. And I'm up, and I'm, up, and I'm away, and I'm, I don't even know how to ask, for, have you seen my child? I don't, I don't know anything. Zero. And I'm panicking, and I'm running around, and I, suddenly, and I find her in this shop, some Brazilian woman giving her a lollipop, and she stood there looking at all these sweets, like, And I went in. She didn't know she was lost. She didn't have a clue. She she didn't feel lost. She felt okay, but I knew she was lost and I was panicking. The world is the same. You don't have to feel lost. But we're there. We're caught up with it all. Stood there like that. Watching it all go by. The Bible says we're lost without Jesus. Forever. No matter how you feel about it, it doesn't change the fact. And it's our job to bring you good news. Jesus has come. 
Jesus has come to save us. This life is not hell, as I'm often told in Nidri. That's reserved for the life to come, for those who refuse to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. This life offers us a chance to respond to the the gospel and then to pass this good news on to others. Jesus came to save sinners. So that's what we must do and that's what we must be preaching whatever we are, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, despite the cost. I remember Jez went to a meeting early, early doors at Nidri and I am finished, honestly, and you can all, you know, get your cup of tea in a minute. Jez went to this meeting and it was about using our building and, you know, doing a partnership with people in the community, la, 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 la. And uh, it was with a local group, I won't say who they were. And this group had a list of demands to use our building which is quite amusing. They hadn't met us, so they didn't know what they were in for. And um, one of them, these little demands in a church, mind you, was we were not to talk to, uh, to people, we were not to mention the name of Jesus or try to convert their people. And the phrase we used was we were to be morally neutral. So after careful consideration of about half a second, we laughed. Jez laughed quite a lot. And we said, well, actually, nobody on earth is morally neutral. That's just a stupid statement, isn't it? Anyone entering our building is going to hear about Jesus. Anyone entering the the vicinity of Nidri is going to hear about Jesus. It's who we are. It's what we do. It's what the chapel should be about, isn't it? It shouldn't be about great preaching and great history and the big organ. It should be about Jesus. People should be coming here to hear about Jesus, to leave encouraged about their relationship with the Lord Jesus. Hear the gospel, whether you love it or hate it, it's there, it's fact, it's proclaimed. Paul was joyful because even in prison, the gospel was being advanced by him and others. Whatever their reasons were, he wasn't interested. So the question is, and I'll leave you with this, are you going to stand for Jesus in the midst of an increasingly hostile environment? Are you going to stand for Jesus? Are you just going to sing about it? Would you give up your precious career and job for Jesus? Think about it. Don't just sit and go, yeah, yeah, I definitely would. They're hard questions, aren't they? I'm not, I'm not saying they're easy, and I'm not saying I'm better than you, so don't read me wrong, please. What are you willing to go to the sword for in your life? You know, we've got many special interest groups in the church. You've got the AV Brigade, the Hymn Brigade, the Modern Worship Brigade, Pro-abortion, anti-abortion, the homeschooling, Christian schooling, creationist, economic injustice, social action brigade. Many of them take up a lot of time and effort, and rightly so, I'm not saying they're wrong, alright? But they must never replace the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. Never. If a hymn book gets in the way of me telling people about Jesus, I'm going to burn it and boot it out of the building. I can assure you of that, offensive or not. Because we're about Jesus. That's what we should be about. Let's remember what we're about. If your friends know more about your interest in following your football team than in about your saviour, you need to evaluate your life. Our joy must come in the advancement of the gospel. God has called us to preach the gospel everywhere. Some of us, like me, get paid to do it. And I love that. Can I just say, thank you very much. No, I'm serious. I really appreciate it. I'm not. I genuinely do. I love it. I love telling people about Jesus. Great. I'm going to get paid. 
What a bonus. Most of, most of us, like you guys, work to raise money in order to do it. I'm not paid to do it for you. Just remember that. I'll help you all you like. And you probably, most of you don't want me anywhere near your mates. The point is this. All of us are full-time gospel spreaders. Are we not? If you're not sharing your faith in Christ from one week to the next, then where are you? Where are you? We've got a wonderful saviour. Who thinks we've got a wonderful saviour? Come on. Nothing's going to happen to you if you put your hands up. Nothing can beat that, can it? Tell me what can beat that. Nothing. Nothing and nobody can ever rob us of that. Jesus rules. And the great thing is, we're going to get to do it with him one day. Take that to the bank. Keep going. Keep fighting. Above all, whatever life throws at you, is throwing at you, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Ride out the storm. Interestingly, Paul encourages them. He ends with this, and I'm going to end with this. In, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friend. Amen? Amen. Amen. Are we going to sing, or have I bored everybody? We're going to sing.